Chapter Twenty Three B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Three B. Methods of Literary Work. Lincoln as an Orator. Caution in Impromptu Speeches. His Literary Style. Management of his Private Correspondence. Knowledge of Woodcraft trees and human character, exchanging views with Professor Agassiz, magnanimity toward opponents, righteous indignation, Lincoln's religious nature. Lincoln was not a ready writer, and when preparing documents or speeches of special importance he altered and elaborated his sentences with patient care. His public utterances were so widely reported and so mercilessly discussed that he acquired caution in expressing himself without due preparation. It is stated, on what seems sufficient authority, that his Gettysburg speech, brief and simple as it is, was rewritten many times before it finally met his approval. He began also to be guarded in responding to demands for impromptu speeches, which were constantly being called for. Mr. Brooks relates that, once, being notified that he was to be serenaded, just after some notable military or political event, he asked me to come to dinner, so as to be on hand and see the fun afterward, as he said. He excused himself as soon as we had dined, and while the bands were playing, the crowds cheering, and the rockets bursting outside the house, he made his reappearance in the parlour with a roll of manuscript in his hand. Perhaps noticing a look of surprise on my face, he said, "'I know what you are thinking about.' You think it mighty queer that an old stump-speaker like myself should not be able to address a crowd like this outside without a written speech. But you must remember that in a certain way I am talking to the country, and I have to be mighty careful. Now the last time I made an off-hand speech, in answer to a serenade, I used the phrase as applied to the rebels, turned tail and ran. Some very nice Boston folks, I am grieved to hear, were very much outraged by that phrase which they thought improper, so I resolved to make no more impromptu speeches, if I could help it. In all Lincoln's writings, even his most important state papers, his chief desire was to make himself clearly understood by the common reader. He had a great aversion to what he called machine-writing, and used the fewest words possible to express his meaning. He never hesitated to employ a homely expression when it suited his purpose. In his first message the phrase sugar-coated occurred, and when it was printed, Mr. DeFries, the public printer, being on familiar terms with the President, ventured an objection to the phrase, suggesting that Lincoln was not now preparing a campaign document, or delivering a stump speech in Illinois, but constructing an important state paper that would go down historically to all coming time, and that therefore he did not consider the phrase sugar-coated as entirely a becoming and dignified one. "'Well, de Fries,' replied Lincoln good-naturedly, "'if you think the time will ever come when the people will not understand what sugar-coated means, I'll alter it. Otherwise, I think I'll let it go.' On the same subject, Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe says, "'Our own politicians were somewhat shocked with his state papers at first why not let us make them a little more conventional and file them to a classical pattern? No, was his reply, I shall write them myself. 
the people will understand them. But this or that form of expression is not elegant, not classical. The people will understand it, has been his invariable reply, and whatever may be said of his state papers as compared with the classic standards, it has been a fact that they have always been wonderfully well understood by the people, and that since the time of Washington the state papers of no president have more controlled the popular mind. One reason for this is that they have been informal and undiplomatic. They have more resembled a father's talk to his children than a state paper. They have had that relish and smack of the soil that appeal to the simple human heart and head, which is a greater power in writing than the most artful devices of rhetoric. Lincoln might well say with the Apostle, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. His rejection of what is called fine writing was as deliberate as St. Paul's, and for the same reason, because he felt that he was speaking on a subject which must be made clear to the lowest intellect, though it should fail to captivate the highest. But we say of Lincoln's writing that for all true manly purposes there are passages in his state papers that could not be better put. They are absolutely perfect. They are brief, condensed, intense, and with a power of insight and expression which make them worthy to be inscribed in letters of gold. Hon. William J. Bryan, certainly a competent judge of oratory, says of Lincoln, as an orator, Brevity is the soul of wit, and a part of Lincoln's reputation for wit lies in his ability to condense a great deal into a few words. He was epigrammatic. His Gettysburg speech is the world's model in eloquence, elegance, and condensation. He was apt in illustration, no one more so. A simple story or simile drawn from everyday life flashed before his hearers the argument that he wanted to present. He made frequent use of Bible language, and of illustrations drawn from Holy Writ. It is said that when he was preparing his Springfield speech of 1858 he spent hours in trying to find language that would express the central idea, that a republic could not permanently endure part free and part slave. Finally, a Bible passage flashed through his mind, and he exclaimed, I have found it! A house divided itself cannot stand. Probably no other Bible passage ever exuded as much influence as this one in the settlement of a great controversy. Lincoln was a tireless worker, and delegated no duties to others which he could perform himself. His health seemed to bear the strain of his terrible burdens wonderfully well. There are but few references anywhere to his being incapacitated by illness. One such reference occurs in Wells's diary, dated March 14, 1865. The President was somewhat indisposed, but not seriously ill. The members of the Cabinet met in his bedroom. His correspondence was extensive and burdensome, and as a rule he wrote his most important letters with his own hand, frequently going to the trouble of taking copies which were filed with careful order in a cabinet, the interior of which was divided into pigeon-holes. These pigeon-holes, as Mr. Brooks tells us, were lettered in alphabetical order, but a few were devoted to individuals. Horace Greeley had a pigeon-hole by himself. So did each of several generals who wrote often to him. One compartment, labeled W and W, excited much curiosity, but I never asked what it meant and one night, being sent to the cabinet for a letter which the President wanted, he said, 
I see you looking at my W and W. Can you guess what that stands for? Of course it was useless to guess. Well, said he with a roguish twinkle of the eye, that's weed and wood, Thurlow and Fernandy. Then he added with an indescribable chuckle, that's a pair of them. When asked why he did not have a letter-book and copying-press, he said, A letter-book might be easily stolen and carried off, but that stock of filed letters would be a backload. A lady who once rode with Lincoln in the presidential carriage to the soldier's home gives some interesting details concerning his knowledge of woodcraft. Around the home, says this lady, grows every variety of tree, particularly of the evergreen class. Their branches brushed into the carriage as we passed along, and left with us that pleasant woodsy smell belonging to fresh leaves. One of the ladies, catching a bit of green from one of these intruding branches, said it was cedar, and another thought it was spruce. "'Let me discourse on a theme I understand,' said the President. "'I know all about trees, by right of being a backwoodsman. I'll show you the difference between spruce pine and cedar, and this shred of green, which is neither one nor the other, but a kind of illegitimate cypress." He then proceeded to gather specimens of each, and explain the distinctive formation of foliage belonging to every species. "'Trees,' he said, "'are as deceptive in their likeness to one another as are certain classes of men, amongst whom none but a physiognomist's eye can detect dissimilar moral features, until events have developed them. Do you know it would be a good thing if in all the schools proposed and carried out by the improvement of modern thinkers we could have a school of events?" "'A school of events,' repeated the lady addressed. "'Yes,' he continued, "'since it is only by that active development that character and ability can be tested. Understand me. I now mean men, not trees. They can be tried, and an analysis of their strength obtained less expensive to life and human interests than man's. What I say now is a mere whim, you know, but when I speak of a school of events I mean one in which, before entering real life, students might pass through the mimic vicissitudes and situations that are necessary to bring out their powers and mark the calibre to which they are assigned. Thus one could select from the graduates an invincible soldier, equal to any position, with no such word as fail, a martyr to right ready to give up life in the cause, a politician too cunning to be outwitted, and so on. These things have all to be tried, and their sometime failure creates confusion as well as disappointment. There is no more dangerous or expensive analysis than that which consists of trying a man." Among Lincoln's callers one Sunday evening was the distinguished scientist Louis Agassiz. The two men were somewhat alike in their simple, shy, and unpretending nature, and at first felt their way with each other, like two bashful schoolboys. Lincoln began conversation by saying to Agassiz, "'I never knew how to pronounce your name properly. Won't you give me a little lesson at that, please?' Then he asked if the name were of French or Swiss derivation, to which the professor replied that it was partly of each. That led to a discussion of different languages, the President speaking several words in different languages which had the same root as similar words in our own tongue. Then he illustrated that by one or two anecdotes. But he soon returned to his gentle cross-examination of Agassiz, and found out how the professor studied, how he composed, and how he delivered his lectures. 
how he found different tastes in his audiences in different portions of the country. When afterwards asked why he put such questions to his learned visitor, he said, Why, what we got from him isn't printed in the books. The other things are. But Lincoln did not do all the questioning. In his turn Agassiz asked Lincoln if he had ever engaged in lecturing. Lincoln gave the outline of a lecture, which he had partly written years before, to show the origin of inventions, and prove that there is nothing new under the sun. "'I think I can show,' said he, at least in a fanciful way, that all the modern inventions were known centuries ago. Agassiz begged that Lincoln would finish the lecture sometime. Lincoln replied that he had the manuscript somewhere in his papers, and—' said he, when I get out of this place, I'll finish it up, perhaps." So great was Lincoln's magnanimity, and so keen his sense of justice, that he never allowed personal considerations to influence his official acts. It is probably true that it was easy for him to forgive an injury, but he was incapable of using his position as President to gratify his private resentments. It was once represented to him that a recent appointee to an important office had been bitterly opposed to him politically. "'I suppose,' said he, "'the judge did behave pretty ugly. But that wouldn't make him any less fit for this place, and I have a scriptural authority for appointing him. You recollect that while the Lord on Mount Sinai was getting out a commission for Aaron, that same Aaron was at the foot of the mountain, making a false god, a golden calf, for the people to worship. Yet Aaron got his commission, you know.' At another time, when remonstrated with upon the appointment to place of one of his former opponents, he said, "'Nobody will deny that he is a first-rate man for the place, and I am bound to see that his opposition to me personally shall not interfere with my giving the people a good officer.' And on another similar occasion, when remonstrated with by members of his cabinet, he said, "'Oh, I can't afford to punish every person who has seen fit to oppose my election.' We want a competent man in this office, and I know of no one who could perform the duties better than the one proposed." With all his self-abnegation, Lincoln could be stern when the occasion warranted it. As an illustration, the following incident is related. An officer who had been cashiered from the service forced himself several times into Lincoln's presence to plead for a reversal of his sentence. Each time he read a long argument attempting to prove that he had received unjust treatment. The President listened to him patiently, but the facts, on their most favorable showing, did not seem to him to sanction his interference. In the last interview the man became angry, and turning abruptly said, "'Well, Mr. President, I see you are determined not to do me justice.' This was too much, even for the long-suffering Lincoln. Manifesting, however, no more feeling than that indicated by a slight compression of the lips, he quietly arose, laid down a package of papers he held in his hands, and then suddenly seizing the disgraced officer by the coat-collar, he marched him forcibly to the door, saying, as he ejected him into the passage, "'Sir, I give you fair warning never to show yourself in this room again. I can bear censure, but not insult.' In a whining tone the man begged for his papers, which he had dropped. "'Be gone, sir,' said the President. Your papers will be sent to you. I wish never to see your face again." Much has been said about Lincoln's views on religion. Like many other great men, he was not what might technically be called a Christian. 
He was a religious man in spirit and by nature, yet he never joined a church. Mrs. Lincoln says that he had no religious faith, in the usual acceptation of the word, but that religion was a sort of poetry in his nature. Twice during his life, she said, he seemed especially to think about it. One was when our boy Willie died. Once, and this time he thought of it more deeply, was when he went to Gettysburg. But whatever his inner thoughts may have been, no man on earth had a firmer faith in Providence than Abraham Lincoln. Perhaps he did not himself know just where he stood. He believed in God, in immortality. He did not believe in eternal punishment, but was confident of rest and peace after this life was over. He may not have felt certain of the divine origin of all parts of the Bible, but he valued its precepts, and his whole life gave evidence of faith in a higher power than that of man. Mr. Nicolay, his secretary, testifies that his nature was deeply religious, but he belonged to no denomination. He had faith in the eternal justice and boundless mercy of providence, and made the golden rule of Christ his practical creed. And Dr. Phillips Brooks, in an eloquent and expressive passage, calls him Shepherd of the People, that old name that the best rulers ever craved. What ruler ever won it like this President of ours? He fed us faithfully and truly. He fed us with counsel when we were in doubt, with inspiration when we sometimes faltered, with caution when we would be rash, with calm, clear, trustful cheerfulness through many an hour when our hearts were dark. He fed hungry souls all over the country with sympathy and consolation. He spread before the whole land feasts of great duty and devotion and patriotism, on which the land grew strong. He fed us with solemn, solid truths. He taught us the sacredness of government, the wickedness of treason. He made our souls glad and vigorous with the love of liberty that was in His. He showed us how to love truth, and yet be charitable, how to hate wrong and all oppression, and yet not treasure one personal injury or insult. He fed all His people, from the highest to the lowest, from the most privileged down to the most enslaved. He fed them with a faithful and true heart. End of chapter 23b Recording by Bill Borst